This is the Sound Health Option Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy, and Sherry Edwards is building the Sound Health Portal, which I highly recommend checking out. You can go to soundhealthportal.com, and they're doing free some free campaigns now. You can have, uh, I believe, uh, I think it's called breath or breathing. Uh, that's partially because of uh, I Sherry wrote software for smoke pollution and smoke toxicity because I live in the part of California we talked about it uh, from the fire last year and now just this year just about a month ago we had the giant fire up uh, about 90 miles northeast of me called the campfire up in Paradise, California where about 10,000 homes were lost and tremendous amount of smoke so there's that campaign as well as neuroplasticity and I think there's a biodiet campaign as well so if you go to soundhealthportal.com, you can have a free vocal analysis. Just register, and they'll email it to you. So there's that. And today, I'm very happy to say we're welcoming back Dr. James Greenblatt, and we're going to be talking about uh, PTSD in uh, all of its uh, areas. But I'm going to say, uh, again, one, that in the show notes, You'll find the show we did uh, a couple of months ago with Dr. Greenblatt on lithium, which is such an important nutrient. I think we'll figure in here today as well. So this is a show from last week. uh, I mean, I think just about two months ago that's available. And then this show, which I know you'll want to listen to again. And you can find those shows by either going to soundhealthoptions.com Click on the radio tab and then click on the Sound Health radio tab and the replay link to the show notes and the show will be there in about half an hour after the show. And or you can also find it at iTunes or Pocket Casts or Stitcher or Dogcatcher or now Google Pocket Podcasts. Uh, Google Podcasts is pretty good because it's free. It's cross-platform, which I find pretty handy. And if you happen to have a smart device, you can ask it to play the shows. And you can go there and search for Sherry Edwards, and you'll find her over, I think we're just, we're somewhere in the middle of 700 shows now. And this is one of those shows you're going to want to listen to again, because I bet everybody listening to this show knows somebody who has PTSD in some form or another for a result of some sort of effect, factor. And with that, I will introduce... Dr. James Greenblatt is Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Medical Services at Walden. He provides medical management, leadership and oversight of Walden's eating disorder and psychiatric programs in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Georgia. Through three decades of practice and research, Dr. Greenblatt is an acknowledged integrative medicine expert, educator, and author. As a board-certified child and adult psychiatrist, Dr. Greenblatt has lectured internationally on the scientific evidence for nutritional interventions in attention, mood, and eating disorders, as well as Alzheimer's disease and other psychiatric illnesses. He is the author of six books on integrative psychiatric therapies and serves as an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at both Tufts University School of Medicine and Dartmouth College Geisel School of Medicine. Dr. Greenblatt joins us today to talk about integrative medicine and PTSD. Welcome back, Dr. James. Great. Thank you very much for having me. I want to open with a question about, would you give us the clinical description of PTSD? Uh, Absolutely. Um, PTSD is, is a, a psychiatric diagnosis. It affects around 3 or 4% of, of the population, uh, but many of us in the field um, think it, it's probably higher. And the, this diagnosis is really based on um, experiencing 
a, a very uh, significant stressful event and then uh, symptoms of these stressful events um, are, persist. And these can be uh, physical symptoms, including insomnia, flashbacks to the event, um, uh, uh, nightmares, uh, anxiety uh, that is just chronic, unremitting, and sets up the course for multiple other psychiatric disorders. So it, it really is a reaction to a, a traumatic event. And the powerful thing that I hope we talk about is that everybody's reaction might be different. Some would develop PTSD in a situation and someone might not. Those that develop have a chronic neurochemical change, making them prone to the symptoms of flashbacks and nightmares and chronic anxiety that becomes disabling. And are there... Can, are there degree? I guess there, by what you just said, are there degrees of PTSD? Can you have a, a I, I don't know how else, how else to say this, but a light case of PTSD versus an extreme case of PTSD? Uh, absolutely. The symptoms do vary, you know, in severity. Um, so there are those that um, might, you know, notice a little increase in heart rate when they hear a, a story that reminds them where, where others become um, extremely um, hypervigilant and anxious and uh, somewhat paralyzed, and, and some can dissociate, meaning kind of lose touch with reality for periods of time. So there is a broad range of severity, and that's why we, we do miss a lot of individuals um, that have not as severe symptoms, so they might not be reaching the mental health professional, um, but they're really struggling or covering up those symptoms with alcohol um, and, and drugs. And can people, uh, can it be, can it act out in a way such as an OCD like condition? Could somebody have something that looks to be OCD as a result of a PTSD issue? Well, I think what is both uh, tragic, troubling, and and uh, neurochemically somewhat interesting is that the initial kind of insult and the complications that follow are, are really endless. So many patients with PTSD from a trauma at some point, whether it was a sexual abuse, uh, a rape, um, a military service, you know, or I just spoke to a woman who witnessed the suicide um, of her roommate and had to be hospitalized. So the traumas can be endless. Um, and how we adapt or cope with that trauma, we certainly see symptoms for some. Again, not everyone. Of, like OCD, they develop these rituals as a way of binding the anxiety. Now, I believe there's a genetic kind of liability, what happens to each individual. Um, but to directly answer your question, yes, we've seen OCD as an adaptive response. And can OCD be a result of a repeated exposure? Or as you might have one exposure of something or an incident that would occur uh, once, and it might be, I don't know, bad as in real big quotes. Uh, it might be something, but can it be an accumulative effect? I think it would be hard to generalize with this, okay. you know, millions of people that have, um, but certainly I can think of cases where absolutely the, the rituals associated with OCD is what helps the individual kind of bind the anxiety. Mm-hmm. I'm partially asking that from uh, being in that part of California that had fires uh, from last year, and it was I. I had to evacuate where I am now. It wasn't burned, but I had to evacuate because we were all standing out in the street looking, and we saw fires looking the hill just north of me, and so we all evacuated. But I was staying in town, and for that period of time, for a week to ten days, 
anytime you heard a sound or a siren, because sometimes the sheriffs would be driving through the town saying, you know, please voluntarily evacuate or get out now. So it was like living in a, you know, very hazardous situation. So there's a lot of stress. And I noticed myself, calm person, pretty much. And yet I noticed that I got, I don't mean physically twitchy, but definitely jumpy from the accumulation of that kind of repeated exposure of the sound, the smell, you just became hyper alert. And some of that came back during the second fire. And I'm not saying I have PTSD, but I definitely was, you know, even more jumpy because of the fire from the previous exposure. Yeah. I mean, the the term that that we use in in medicine is this hypervigilant. And then, you know, the exaggerated, kind of startle response. So, and, and there's clearly a, a cumulative effect, um, whether it's, you know, a, a gunshot wound, you know, and then uh, a tires confusing a, a tire or something like the fire is absolutely the first fire you can kind of pass off uh, often as a, an event that will repeat, but as things start repeating, it becomes a, chronic fear that for many could slip into multiple um, symptoms of PTSD, like the hypervigilance you were describing. Mm -hmm. And what is the standard of care for PTSD period? (laughs) Well, well, I mean, I I wish there there was a standard of care. It's, um, it's sadly, um, poorly coordinated all over the place in the medical profession. And and so I could list 10 or 15 different modalities that people are using. Um, and everything from meds to nutrients to something called uh, EMDR, and, uh, high movement treatments to therapy dogs to uh, host of um, cognitive behavioral therapies. Uh, so there's, there's many, uh, many therapies, but there's not a clear protocol that we would have for other psychiatric illnesses or certainly other medical illnesses. And and that's the, uh, I think, the tragedy in the field. Mm-hmm. How can nutritional deficiencies affect anxiety and thusly PTSD? Well, most of my work, as you know, is the relationship between nutritional deficiencies and brain function. And if two people experience the same traumatic event, they witness, you know, a horrible event on the street, uh, the one person that might be deficient in, in sometimes things nutrients like magnesium or have a very, very low B12 level. Um, I believe there's not a lot of research to support it, but in my experience, those individuals, once they develop some of the symptoms of anxiety and PTSD, it stays more chronic um, versus someone who's more optimally nourished and, um, and healthier. So nutritional deficiencies uh, don't cause a PTSD the trauma does, but in terms of the uh, rate of recovery and the ability to kind of uh, utilize some of these other therapeutic modules, I, I think nutrition is critical. Mm-hmm. And are there times, we'll get back to more, I have more nutritional questions, but this just popped in my brain. Are there times when you would utilize medications and integrative therapies? Yes. I mean, to me, the definition of integrative is, is doing what you can to help, you know, our patients who are suffering. And um, if for something like PTSD, because the level of anxiety is so profound, um, you can think of, you know, any running away from, you know, the cyber-toothed tiger, um, that fight-or-flight response, but your legs are tied. You can't run. Um so it's that level of fear and anxiety that causes many of our PTSD patients to go to drugs, whether it's uh, opiates, heroin, or alcohol, to, to, to stop those feelings. 
that intense anxiety. So, yes, I'm fine with some medications uh, temporarily to decrease the anxiety so it doesn't become chronic. And the, the simplest and safest medications are something called the beta blockers, which we use for blood pressure. But it decreases that fight-or-flight response so the heart rate doesn't go up so fast. So it minimizes some of that panic. I went to college, uh, we were talking a bit backstage, and I went to college with a number of uh, Vietnam veterans in the 70s. And these are young guys who'd been in Vietnam and had really horrific incidences around them. Uh, They all came out okay. Some of them came back either an amputee or I also knew a paraplegic who'd been blown up in a helicopter and a, a lot of them at that time in the 70s they came back and were using cannabis or in those days pot to keep themselves as chill as possible and that was their their way of self-medicating sometimes alcohol some of them were a couple of them were alcoholics but a lot of them were using cannabis because it was able to deliver rapidly and they could keep themselves balanced out and really act as a I would herbally, I would think of it as a nervine almost, really calming their nervous systems down because they were just blown out. Uh, and it was really, you know, really genuinely good guys who just had been exposed to things that were, in my terms, would be mind blowing. Um, and they weren't, there weren't in the 70s, there wasn't that much they were doing for them. Are there, are there protocols that the, if, uh, I'm asking, this just came to me. Are there protocols that the Veterans Administration has for PTSD that you know of? Uh, for cannabis or medical marijuana? Well, no. I think I, that... Go ahead. Yeah, no. Um, you know, the, the, obviously our, our, our um, veterans, our military service have, have many programs in, in many of the VAs. Uh, from assisted dogs to medications to group therapy to individual therapy. Um, I have not seen uh, much nutrition work done in the VA, but they have been very open to some of all the other um, treatment modalities. Um, So the the VA is probably our best uh, organized uh, treatment model for uh, PTSD. Although I, I think it's still limited. I, I think that um, many individuals for a whole host of reasons um, don't always get the, the treatment that they need. I, uh-huh. I do want to come back to the, the, the cannabis, the marijuana that you brought up. You know, uh-huh. I'm not a huge fan of medical marijuana, but over the last couple of years, we have been using the CBD oil, uh-huh. um, which is, um, kind of blown up all over the place from soaps to shampoos. But, you know, pharmaceutical-grade CBD oil um, has been helpful um, for anxiety, public speaking, and some studies um, for PTSD. So I would be much um, stronger proponent of looking at uh, CBD oil for the anxiety associated with PTSD for our uh, military vets. Uh-huh. I've been to, uh, last year I was at a cannabis conference and there was a group of, uh, there was a panel with about military and veterans in general. And there were a lot of the, I'll call them crusty because I'm in that same vintage of being slightly crusty now in my attitude and <laughs> my personality. And there were a number of the crusty older Vietnam vets who were coming to the microphone and using a lot of expletives about how the VA was giving them grief about them using cannabis on their own and that they were threatening to take away or, you know, giving them mm, grief about using cannabis in conjunction with medications and they were threatening to take away their medications because they were, had been and were using cannabis. And that's just uh, the THC side, not the CBD side. And then on the other hand, right. I'll say at that same conference, they, there was a lot of conversation about CBD oil and its benefits as an anti-inflammatory and a nervine and immune support and all sorts of benefits. And um, I'm, I myself, quite a, I'm a big fan of CBD oil. I think it's a, a really underrated uh, tool in the chest of all things beneficial to the immune system and as a nervine as well. 
So, yeah, sure. there's a lot more conversation about CBD. Now, there's a question here about, you had mentioned this to me, about acute resolution therapy. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. I, I think uh, we need to start with EMDR, so eye movement um, uh, desensitization. So that was a technique um, that was developed for trauma where somebody utilizes some um, hand movements to, uh, and, and they're tracking it with their eyes. So someone is, um, have you, are you familiar with EMDR at all? Yes, I am. Okay. So, so it, it's that, um, and so a number of people, and myself included, was trained on EMDR um, years ago, and it is a it is limited because oftentimes we're asking the patients to uh, talk about the trauma, and and then that kind of recreates the trauma. So a few individuals who were trained in EMDR who had uh, limited success developed this technique called ART. So it's a version of EMDR. And it is just a kind of milder, a gentler version, um, which uh, myself and in our hospital, and I've spoken to psychiatrists around the country, have had incredible results. So it's eye movement and desensitization without having to um, discuss. They can um, utilize the images of the trauma in their head, but they're not talking about it. And it's a series of exercises to kind of help take away the emotions, the intense emotions connected with the visual uh, images of the trauma. And, and the research is actually there's some good military research, academic research. And, and if your listeners uh, look it up, they'll find that um, it, it has um, probably the, both, the best evidence-based research for the treatment of trauma. Wow, that's exciting! I didn't I didn't know about uh, art. I I'm familiar with EMDR. I'd had some EMDR done years ago from a psychiatrist actually in Pacific Grove, who I think was one of the early adopters of it. And I think it's great work, but I love the idea of this, as you say, the gentler side, not building up the conversation, but working on the imagery and clearing that. That's that sounds very powerful. I want that. I'll be looking for that yeah, right and, after and, the show. It, it, yeah, it's. Um, I think there are organizations out of Florida, the founders out of Connecticut, and it, it, it is a just a nice combination of um, uh, you know the EMDR core movement with Gestalt and uh, other kind of uh, forms of psychotherapy that that really are resonate and and. Uh, you'll see some pretty dramatic um, the recovery um, videos on their website. Wow, that's great. I'll be looking that up immediately. Um, let's move into, we talked a bit about this backstage. Let's talk about gut health and how it affects anxiety disorders and, and I'm certain has a factor in PTSD. Sure. Again, I believe it's, um, it's always this double-edged sword. I believe that there are individuals that have, you know, what we call dysbiosis, um, where their gut bacteria producing neurotransmitters and chemicals that are affecting the brain that uh, someone would have a higher level of anxiety. There might be a higher risk there. And then, you know, when somebody is anxious, um, so after the trauma, the, the hormones, the stress, and all the dietary um, changes that we make um, when we're, we're stressed out will then affect the gut. Um, and the overgrowth of certain uh, bacteria, we clearly know, can affect levels of neurotransmitters in the brain, overgrowth of yeast. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a, a vicious cycle, um, but the research has been quite, um, uh, you know, um, robust over the past few years about how the gut bacteria and dysbiosis in the gut 
affects brain function, neurotransmitter function, and anxiety seems to be one of the most consistent findings that we're seeing in both animal and human studies. Huh. And do you have uh, specific protocols or you develop a protocol or suggestions or recommended diet for people with some of these issues or is that on a per case basis? And do you just, I can't imagine you would do this, but you don't just hand everybody or say, go get this formula and you'll be great. You dial it in for each individual? So the core of my work over the years and, and our practice is a, a very individualized, personalized medicine approach to health. So someone with PTSD, we would be looking at nutrient deficiencies and we'd be looking at the gut and we can look at metabolites of the gut. But not everybody can seek out those practitioners or afford those tests. Um, so if, if I had to make a list of you know, five supplements to take for PTSD, I would be just recommending a high-dose probiotic um, formula because it's simple, it's safe, and, and there might be some significant reduction in anxiety as part of an overall um, therapy and medical behavioral program. And when you say high-dose, do you mean uh, 100,000? Uh, I forget what they call what the category it's, is. It's up into billions. Yes. Okay. They call them CFUs, and um, you know you can get them in the health food store, ten or twenty billion CFUs. Um, but to make a dent in some of the mental health issues we've seen, um, we're recommending a hundred to two hundred, and and there are supplements. One is a is a prescription um, that are nine hundred billion. CFUs, and, and that's what um, we're often recommending then. 900 billion? Wow. That's a lot of little bugs. In, that's in a, great. In a very <laughs> small package, but, you know, to make a dent, um, it, it's simple and it's safe, and there's certainly been good research. And it has nothing but benefit um, in terms of its overall strengthening the system and helping the digestive system work better because if you're anxious I know people who have anxiety or who are anxious who they aren't digesting their food correctly because that skews the hydrochloric acid levels and does all sorts of stuff so it always seems to me that gut health really is a strong foundation of having a state of balance. Is that appearing in your research? Is that is that from your experience of working with people that the gut you know, really needs to be healthy for everything else to fall into place? Uh, absolutely. I think it's really important. It's foundational. I think if people just think that's the only thing they need to do, they often don't get resolution of symptoms. But as a foundational... Um, way uh, towards a, a path of health, the gut is oftentimes the first and many times the most important. And what are some of the characteristics of or, or effects of chronic stress on nutrients? What, uh, the things that people can look for or things in general they can do? Or do you think they really need to seek somebody such as yourself that can give them a, a big picture, do a giant intake, and give them a big picture on how to balance things out? No, I, th- I think our understanding of stress has uh, been around for 50 years at least, and and um, it, it, it's one of the most destructive forces on our mental and physical health. Um, It's just that powerful. So when I see young kids, um, you know, struggling and staying up all night for tests or people at work um, unable to relax, um, all I can kind of imagine is what the toll that eventually takes on their body. For specifically the, the stress response, creates, you know, that fight-or-flight response. Um, And what happens is that the the nutritional link is a a chronic depletion of two nutrients 
in particular are three, magnesium, a vitamin C, and, and the B vitamins, one in particular, pantothenic acid. So, you know, we can deal with it for a day or an hour if we're running, again, from our predator, but if we're under chronic stress day in and day out, our adrenal glands are hyped up and we're utilizing um, and losing in our in our system massive amounts of vitamin C and magnesium. So, again, a vicious cycle, so much of the symptoms of anxiety are related to magnesium deficiency. And as we're more anxious, we're not repleting it. It's just getting um, uh, depleted through the urine. And even if you're working on gut health, do you feel that for a period of time or possibly forever that we need to take those as supplements, not just attempt to get that all through our foods? Do you, or do you think it's possible to actually get all that from our foods? Uh, I think um, if you're healthy, you know, and we're eating well, you can get most of this through your food. But if you're under a stressful situation, the amount of depletion uh, will take its toll. And, and I'm a firm believer of targeted nutritional supplementation, um, be it probiotics, magnesium, vitamin C. And all of those are easily accessible and rel- pretty affordable over the counter. I mean, they're all, you know, user-friendly, so to speak. Um, yes. Now I want to move into a, a slightly, well, it's it's a true condition, but it's a, it's a harder conversation in some ways. Talk to us about PTSD as a risk factor for suicide, particularly in our veterans. Sure. Well, suicide, as um, everyone is aware of, is just a uh, overwhelming epidemic across the world, but certainly in this country. Rates have gone up almost 30% in um, the past um, 15 years. Uh, it's gone up every year uh, across many ages from young kids. We, we, When I was in training, we didn't think of 10 to 14-year-old preteen suicides, and now we see them often. And wow. um, men over 60, and then all the he- uh, headlines around celebrities um Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. So it is a serious um, epidemic, and and I think medicine has completely missed the boat by not looking at this as a biological phenomenon and um, researching it. The amount of research is minuscule compared to other life-threatening illnesses. There are more people that die of suicide than homicide, and we get very worked up about guns and and homicides, but um, somehow suicides get neglected. So I could go on and on, but to focus me, the military suicides are um, are, are just increasing, and uh, I, I think one of the most important studies, because we all assume it's just PTSD from combat, but one study um, of individual veterans that killed themselves, 80% of those suicides were individuals that were never deployed. Wow. So it's not the trauma of, it's not only the trauma of, of war. And what the military has done, uh, they've done some good research and they continue to do research on, on my area of interest, which is the relationship between nutrition and suicide, particularly fat deficiency. So the omega-3 fatty acids in some of the military studies um, were dramatically lower uh, in those that killed themselves. Actually, the the fatty acid DHA, 62% lower in those that killed themselves than those that didn't. So the military, in an effort to um, prevent suicide, they um, are providing omega-3 enhanced uh, rations in their food supply. And they're also got a multi-million dollar study the Department of Defense, and I think it's a medical school in Southern Carolina to continue to explore the relationship between omega-3 fatty acids and suicide. 
So military suicides are increasing. They're epidemic. I believe there's 25 plus a day. Um, and then when we use that statistic, we don't even include or I was talking to someone who was in the military, and they said it, it vastly underestimates uh, the real suicides because so many of our vets are homeless and and their suicides are not recorded as suicides, just death. Um, so access to care, better biological monitoring, and understanding some of these biological risk factors are critical. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, as I compare the veterans I know from the Vietnam era to now, I know a number of vets who, and, the, and this is a kind of a personal observation also from the tech world, there's so many people who are serving in the military who walk out of their house in wherever they are and walk onto a military base and go into a darkened room and drive some remote device, whether it be a drone or some other kind of thing that causes great destruction, and then they walk out of that building and go home in the daytime. And I just think that's a category of stunning amount of stress. I'm not, I'm not diminishing being action in the field of actual combat, because I also know those people. But I think there's a difference when you have context for where you are versus the idea of, I, and I'm, I'm not diminishing that at all. That's horrific. But the idea of going into a room and, you know, kind of a video game-ish kind of atmosphere of doing something and then going home. I've known a couple of guys specifically who've done that who are really a wreck because there's no context. There's no anything. And I just, I I don't know if you deal, I have dealt with some of those people, but I mean... That's really, I can imagine, that must be contributing to this level of stress and the number of suicides because there's no, you know, you can't talk to anybody about it at home. And wow. Well, I think that um, distance and that lack of connection with humanity uh, because our brain functions um, and our brain cells work when we look at somebody and we connect with somebody or we see somebody. So I, I think your example is also reflective of some of the uh, social media uh, triggers for suicide where, you know, there's suicide chat groups or there's been some recent cases of um, uh, friends encouraging someone who's thinking of suicide to follow through with it through a text and a series of texts. And again, very different than if they were sitting with that person and could develop the empathy that our brains were evolved to experience. Wow. And I guess that has to move us into, there's an increase in suicide in younger people uh, so it seems, at least from my view, and is that true? Am I misreading that? I mean, it seems like when you mentioned earlier, you mentioned 12 to 14-year-olds. Have we always had that, or is it in a rise? And what what is the research, or what does your research show for the for the reason for that? Well, absolutely, there's been a rise across all ages. The, the highest, it, it's average is around 30%. Um, and it varies by state, and, and that's really um, fascinating because of, you know, a different in environmental, physical, or, or uh, cultural. So it varies by state. But absolutely, the young kids um, have increased. My work is with eating disorders. Um, so I, I work in an eating disorder facility, and what many people don't understand or is that the highest risk of suicide of any psychiatric illness are those individuals with anorexia nervosa. And to me, that is just a reflection of all the work that I do um, because they're so malnourished. You know, the fat that we talked about, the nutrients uh, that we've talked about. So it is um, 
a reflection of malnutrition in, in my experience, but we have very high rates of suicide among our eating sort of patients and then are depressed, bipolar, and, and individuals with substance abuse. Uh, but adolescent suicide is, is just so tragic to me because it is preventable. Um, many individuals um, are ashamed to, to get help, to seek help, and we don't always have the uh, services available. And my mind is reeling. Um, and you said it was varies by state. Is this part of the conversation we had a couple of months ago and in one of the factors of lithium in the water supply or why by state? Is there research on the why by state? Well, no. Um, I think in, in, the, in the CDC, you know, U.S. research, we just know, actually I think it's Montana, you know, might be higher than uh, New York. So there's no real correlation there. But what we talked about last time on, on lithium, that, that information is separate but very profound, that different areas in the state, and in this country it's mostly done in Texas, but we've done it around the world, um, in Japan and Greece and Italy and um, Lithuania, etc. That areas that have the lowest lithium in the drinking water have the highest suicide rate. Wow. And is there is there researching? Does lithium bind something that it gets sucked out of our water supply, or and or is it that everybody's drinking bottled water like crazy, and who knows where that's coming from and what's been done to it? Uh, a little of both. I mean, I think lithium is just unevenly distributed, um, just naturally in the water supply. So it, it you know settled on the earth uh, billions of years ago after the Big Bang. So we have lithium in the earth and, and so it leaches into the water and um, most of us believe it's essential for healthy brain function. So we just have different levels. But I, I think our filtered water, our bottled water, our ionized uh, water, reverse osmosis water, it's certainly taken on lots of nutrients and I believe that is probably part of the reason that I'm seeing more and more um, low lithium levels or undetectable lithium levels. Wow. And I, I want to go back to a, a moment to the anorexics. Have you done research looking at, or do you have a, a thought? I know you have thoughts on the influence of social media. I didn't mean it's to go this direction, but I just have to. It just seems like, as you said, back to that, you have social media where people are influencing by texting and it is not, they don't have empathy. We're not sitting in groups actually talking about this. People are just texting or tweeting or, you know, all of that kind of social activity. Is that a contributing factor to those elevated suicide rates and how much so? Uh, you know, I believe so. I've used the term, um, the gasoline on the fire. So, um, and not maybe not a great analogy now with everything going on in California, but I think there is um, the genetics, there's the malnutrition, there's the substance abuse that kind of kindles um, this uh, inflammatory process, and then the social media just kind of uh, helps it explode and, and supports uh, a suicide community. It... Um, there are good prevention agencies that are using social media to help kids, but um, oftentimes it is that kind of fuel, that gasoline that throws these vulnerable kids into a, a, a state where it becomes the only option for them. And is there, I'm asking this because I see circles of, of youngsters even college groups are things. Well, not so much college groups. But I, for example, I I walk through town and I see gatherings of young people, uh, 
particularly young girls who tend to be more pack oriented in a certain way. in in my view, where they're gathered together, they're sitting outside on a park bench and they're all texting or they're all on their phones. Not, they're not having eye contact is what I'm getting at. So they're not having real direct contact. And is it, do you think that deteriorates away at empathy? If you're, if you're texting somebody or even if I've mean, I've seen situations where they're sitting across from each other and they're messaging and sending things and, and you know, it, it just seems like a large contributing factor of a lack of – we have a lack of intimacy in a certain way in social media. I think if people actually were sitting in a circle, they'd never say some of the things they say on social media that they would in face-to-face situations. That's, a not, that's not really a question, but yeah. that's just an observation on my part. I don't really have a, like, a question there. It's just like, really? And what do we do? How do we balance that? How do we – but, you know, you're absolutely right, and, and that's an important observation. But in terms of the, the suicide prevention, I mean, so many of these kids and adults have killed themselves alone in a room. Um, they've made a decision um, for their reason. Um, but if people connected, um, touched somebody, held their hand, they're not going to commit suicide. People feel better talking about it and people feel better being heard. And most of the uh, suicide attempts that come into our hospital and and read thousands of accounts, um, uh, the vast majority are so appreciative that they didn't die. And that in thinking in that moment that it was an impulsive um, gesture. There he goes. Okay. Um, I'm glad he didn't pull up next to you. And is there, do you think if we, I want to uh, back to a nutritional side, is this, do you think this is a, um, I can't think of the term, but there's a phrase, well, there's a phrase in software where things sort of like come into the chaos theory. Is there a, do you think if we had, Sound nutrition to be to start with that people would be less inclined towards suicide. Is this just a cluster of events that have all come together that's exploded the suicide rate of a combination of social media and bad diets and not enough fats and possibly drinking water issues in terms of lithium? Is it just a cluster of things that have come together at this time in your observation in your years of observation? Yeah. You know that's our theory, and that's you know we're finishing up a book on on suicide prevention, helping uh, on, uh, physicians understand a biological model. So it is a a collection of these um, factors, and with a genetic vulnerability. Talk about Hemingway's family; there were seven suicides, and everyone that we admit to our hospital, um, multiple suicides in the family for our highly suicidal. Kids. So it is this genetic vulnerabilities, environmental insults with some clear um, nutritional deficiencies, including uh, fat, omega-3s, and, um, and lithium. So uh, that is the book we're working on now, and hopefully get that out uh, early next year. Well, I look forward to interviewing about that. Kids, yeah, I mean, it, it just it's preventable. It's tragic, and, and taking your life, is something that I think as a medical community, um, we can do a better job. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've lost a couple of friends to suicide and it was, it was mind blowing. Like what? And, and even uh, when Anthony Bourdain committed suicide, having been a chef for 20 years, I had, and, and having listened to a, a number of his shows, it was quite a shock to the system for me, just as having been in the restaurant world for 25 years, understanding that kind of, you know, a chef is a certain kind of personality oftentimes, that kind of reclusive in the kitchen. You might look gregarious, but you're really quite, you know, it's hard work and you might be in a particular state of mind. Uh, and, it was, you know, it's really hard uh, when somebody just suddenly goes away. 
and it's hard to deal with socially. And socially, we don't seem to want to be talking about it. Is that just me, or is that really a truth? We don't really want to talk about it. I mean, I think it was uh, not discussed at all until, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, and now there's suicide hotlines flashed across our TV screen and even in articles at the bottom of the articles. So there's some discussion, um, but, you know, I I make this comparison to, um, I was in the 80s in Washington, D.C., um, when AIDS was first diagnosed, and, and it was a death sentence to these young men uh, coming into the hospital with um, AIDS, and, and uh, many died um, within months or a year. And, and we put a, a tremendous amount of research worldwide, but billions and billions of dollars. I think the AIDS budget this year is $52 billion. But over 30 years, we were able to make this life-threatening illness into a disease that we can live with. And that was research, and that was science, um, and, and our, the money that we put to suicide, which is a life-threatening illness, um, suicidal thoughts, um, there, there's mil, a few million dollars here and there. It is not the massive effort to how do we understand this and how do we treat it. And uh, I have to. I wasn't going to, but I have to ask this question. Do you think that's partially because that the pharmaceutical industry got involved with HIV and therefore there were funds to drive it versus the pharmaceutical industry is not as involved in the suicide world yet? Uh, I I think that's part one. Absolutely. Our research in medicine is driven by what drug company wants to uh, develop a drug. And so that's part of it. Um, But, but for AIDS in particular, there was, there was also millions of dollars coming out of, uh, INH trying to get the immunology um, mm-hmm. and try to get the basic science down so then the drug companies could come in and make their billions. For suicide, I think it's just too far out of our mind to think that there's a drug, even though lithium is an anti-suicide drug. We know that, prescription lithium, but it's off patent, so no one's going to make money on it. Um, I think the stigma, I think the kind of shame and our just lack of embracing public health concerns that affect mental health. Um, you know, recently the epidemic around opiates is generating money uh, to solve problems. And um, I just haven't seen that with uh, suicide prevention, or at least a medical model. Right. Huh. Well, I look forward to your book. <laughs> because I think it's such Thank a, you. you know, I, I think it's such an under talked about conversation. It's not something people want to talk about. That's for sure. Um, I have a couple of very close friends who's oddly enough, both had children that jumped off the golden gate bridge completely separate from each other. But I live near San Francisco and the golden gate bridge is one of those places that people do jump off of from time to time. And I have two friends who lost sons to that very, event, kind of event. And it's still kind of a hushed conversation. And these are people that I've known for more than 30 years. And it isn't so much the individuals, because we have close relationships, but people around them, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very hard thing for people to talk about. And I'm not completely clear why, but I talk for a living. I think about it. You know, I know these people, and sure. I know the effect that it had on them for suddenly somebody to be gone and how it affects their entire community. Um, and it's just, it's something people just don't like to talk about. I mean, I'm not saying it's certainly not a joyful thing, but it certainly needs to be talked about, like everything, in some ways. Yes, if I can just follow up on the Golden Gate Bridge um, as a major spot where people uh-huh. jump um, for suicide attempts. So what the San, city of San Francisco has approved, uh, I believe that the funding will be, uh, the government funding, is um, to spend over $200, I think it's $210 million, for a metal net yep. as a suicide deterrent. 
And uh, this one particular father has been fighting for this for like 10 or 15 years as his son jumped. And to me, it's just a sad reality. Um, and I read an interesting debate with two, two prominent psychiatrists, um, one calculating the money, the $220 million, how we could take every high-risk person in San Francisco and get a once-a-week therapy and meds for two years. Um, and another one argued that it's a good deterrent. Um, and the deterrent is it's metal net. So if you jump, you will hurt yourself. You will not die, but you will hurt yourself. And um, and there are nets around the world that has been a deterrent with less suicides in that area, but it hasn't affected the overall rate. And someone that's committed might not jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, but there are plenty of ways in our country and in our society to kill yourself. So I'm not a fan of that money going as a deterrent. Um, I hope we can get patients treatment and do research on some of this neurochemistry. It's interesting you would bring that up because I've had that very conversation with one of these friends who is in opposition to the net for the same reason that you're talking about, that if that, if some of that 210 million had gone to the mental health, perhaps we could stop people from dropping out, jumping off the bridge or, you know, there's a lot of other ways that $210 million. I'm not advocating for people to jump off the bridge. I want to be really clear about that. I'm just saying $210 million to put a metal net on the Golden Gate Bridge is not a solution. It just seems like a Band-Aid on an issue of, as you said, now people will jump, you know, jump off the bridge knowing they're going to hurt themselves. Well, then what's going to happen? That's not a, right. It's not a fix. It's just a Band-Aid on an issue. And that's one of her platforms is talking about this is not a fix. This is not going to help anybody else. This is just going to prevent. Let's put that money into actual mental health. Um, that's nah, okay. I think at this point I have to ask you, how do people work with you? Uh, are one of your books, would you suggest reading material on PTSD? Is one of your books related to that? Perhaps a depression book? Um, that kind of information. Uh, sure. Um, we have two websites. Uh, James Greenblatt, MD, is, is the website where um, most of my work is. And then for professionals, we have a site called Psychiatry Redefined, where we're training doctors to look at um, alternative ways of, of treating mental illness and suicide prevention. I, I think um, we don't have a book just on PTSD yet, uh, but it's on the list for 2019. Uh, but the depression book, um, which the second edition will be out uh, in a couple months, it, it does provide this overview of a concept of how, of all the things that we've talked about today and how you can begin to look at an integrative approach to uh, anxiety and PTSD. Okay, great. And do you work one-on-one -on -one with clients still, or are you busy researching, instructing, and writing books and doing trainings? <laughs> well, at, um, at Walden Behavioral Care, the hospital that I work for, we do have an integrative clinic looking at this material, and uh, I'm not currently seeing patients, but I supervise everybody, and there are some uh, uh, doctors and nurse practitioners at that clinic. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. I didn't mean to end us on the suicide conversation. It just evolved, but I think it's such a critical conversation. I think it's so important. It's close to me because, as I say, because of these friends, but it's just we need to be willing to talk about it. It is scary. It is horrific. And yet it's a conversation that needs to be, let's bring it out in the open and talk about it. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad we had a chance and because I think we can do more. Yeah, great. Well, thank you very much. That was uh, great. And uh, as again, I'll remind everybody, you can find this uh, show in about half an hour by going to soundhealthoptions.com. Click on the radio tab and then click on Sound Health Radio and the link with all the show notes to Dr. Greenblatt's sites and other information are there. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Have a great rest of the weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs>